Welcome to this week's Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I want to take a quick second to thank a couple of our local business partners in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And they're not open, but you can do takeout. You can order seven days a week. Also, uh, thanks to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park. That's Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret. Again, not yet open for business, but they're live streaming concerts on their website. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, welcome to the program. Later in the show, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh about her visit to Cuba and her impressions of Cuban agriculture and the interesting right-wing response I've gotten since saying that, hey, maybe we have something to learn from Cuba about farming. We'll also um, talk with uh, Kim Jackson. She's a candidate for the uh, state Senate in Georgia. We're going to talk about Georgia's election fiasco and what kind of crazy stuff happened down there last week. All right, but first I want to welcome uh, Mark Edwards to the program. Mark is with uh, Rewilding Iowa. Mark, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. Hey, so, um, you know, to tell us a little bit about your back, what, what got you involved with rewilding Iowa? Well, it all began with a frog when I was quite young, actually. A <laughs> frog? This wasn't, wasn't Kermit the Frog, was it? Uh, no, okay. no, but I, I do have a spot, a soft spot in my heart for Kermit now because he's so <laughs> such a sweet frog. Uh, but it was a, a big, it began with a big tadpole, and as I watched it grow up, uh, it was uh, fascinating. I'd never seen anything like that. And at that time, you know, my mom, we lived in a, a city in Florida, and you could, she would say, you know, you got to be back before dark. And that was the kind of life it was at that time. So there was kids out there, and we played. Uh, and then as I, after that, we moved, my father was in the military, we moved to Tokyo. And it was a different world, a totally different world. whole different uh, set of frogs. Uh, I didn't see any frogs there, except when we went out of Tokyo, I did see frogs. And it was like that was the connection back to that childhood, real deep hmm. meaning of something wild out there, something I you know, was fascinated by. So, so when, pe when people hear rewild and wildness, I think they immediately want to think of wilderness. But yet, um, be wild, rewild. Uh, and, the, and the river connectivity project, you, you make a distinction between wilderness and wildness. Can you help us understand what that distinction is? Yeah, that, it's an important distinction because wilderness, uh, we think of, I think most everyone thinks of it as a place. We think of Yellowstone or maybe a local park more as wilderness, but usually it's got to be a pretty big area and somewhere else. And when we think of wildness, we're trying to say wildness begins with the person. That's why I would tell you the story about the frog. That was my big connection to wildness. And so wildness is a state of being. And so it's everywhere. And I like to make the comment that, you know, the wildness is in your stomach. That's what digests your food. It's the mold on the shower curtain. <laughs> and those are all processes that uh, allow a wilderness place to be. So we, we do everything possible to get the mold off of our shower curtains. Do, do you think less of us? <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, mold and, and mycelium are what run the world. The more we're learning the new science is all how trees and everything communicates through that mycelium in the soil and allows things to speak to each other. So right. we probably don't want to get rid of all of it. So my impression is that, uh, that there was a connection between wilderness and wildness that you really 
even though wildness might be more of an internal perspective, you, you, you want wilderness as a place where wildness can achieve its fullest, uh, fullest uh, well, know, when manifestation. You, yes, when you start understanding the processes, that's why we in the United States went to describing and designating places as wilderness because we were talking about them as still functioning ecosystems. But to put all that in perspective, there is no core area in the lower uh, 48 states that is maintaining biological diversity. So, you know, that's what we have to talk about is the, is the exchange and the relationship of life. And we want to go to some place where we think the humans haven't had as big effect, but that's not quite true. And isn't that what climate change is saying? It won't matter where it is. Mm. Humans are part of this process that's going on and changing. So a lot of our challenge is to think differently about how we relate to the natural world. But part of the challenge, too, is to find ways of connecting the wild places we have and to reestablish some places as wild. Absolutely. And, and we do that. That's why we start with be wild, because it's, uh, you know, down to the individual. It's your relationship to where you live. It's all that. And then it begins to get bigger, and it's the connections that go out from there, just like the mycelium uh, spreading through the soil. And so we, we move farther, and so we began with ecology back in the 70s. I started reading conservation ecology, and it was saying that at the end, we, we had large cores, and the cores had to be big enough to support apex predators. And then we realized, well, the cores can't maintain their biological diversity if they're not connected with corridors. Right. And so then we started uh, looking at, well, how do we do corridors? And different states have pursued this you know, to different degrees, but uh, I have connections to Florida, and Florida's kind of was a big lead on realizing they had to keep those corridors for that flow of genetic material across the landscape if it was going to be healthy for people or anything else. Now, so, pe you know, people think of Florida as a very developed state because you can look and you can see the human imprint everywhere. Uh, oh but gosh. maybe people people might not, they might drive through Iowa and think, oh, look at all this uh, this undeveloped land. But I think what a lot of people fail to realize is that agriculture is a form of development and it has a very strong Im impact on on the natural order and on the on that on that connectivity that you speak of. I mean, those yeah, huge I, tracks of corn and soybeans may be productive for a farmer in one sense, but they also are very disruptive to the flow of natural uh, natural life. Absolutely. When you cover two-thirds of this state with only two species requiring petroleum, herbicides, pesticides, all that other stuff, you know, that's not a healthy functioning ecosystem in any sense of the word. And we're seeing that play out when the monarchs are dying off. You know, uh, the lesser scob duck can't fly across the state without starving to death or losing body weight and can't reproduce. We're finally, you know, connecting up all these things, seeing that we have to talk about agriculture because it's the dominant alteration here. And so when we add up what agriculture has done to Iowa, it's actually altered about 98 percent of the state. And I think when people look out and see green and everything, they fail to realize that Iowa has the distinction of being the most biologically altered landscape in North America. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, that, and that is kind of amazing. Uh, and I think a lot of Iowans don't think of that either. But when we when we talk about trying to reconnect areas uh, that you know that that that, that makes where, where where wildness and wilderness make sense, um, you know, you think about all the all the river all the floodplains in the state where. Well, you can maybe you'll get a good couple of years of farming out of there, and then you'll spend all this money on a crop and find that it's underwater. 
and maybe it'll right. be underwater multiple years in a row. And then you've also got areas where the, the slope is so steep, you've got to put in terraces, and even then you're not assured of, uh, of protecting you know, that crop. Between you know, the sloping areas and the uh, floodplain areas, doesn't it make sense to begin to try to figure out ways of, of maybe you know, you know, helping, helping make it attractive to farmers and landowners to get some of that back into a more natural condition to help create that, that, that connectivity? Well, that's a good point because the, really we're the two things that we're saying, you know, human focus is addressing the soil loss and improving our water quality. Well, how, doing that, we should be talking about those floodplains and those slopes. And so we did an analysis. We hired uh, some professional mapping people and we did an analysis of Iowa and we did just those five-year floodplains, something that floods every five years and those are not every, but average and then uh, any slopes over nine percent which you can't really maintain uh you know and make any money off of so we, we mapped those out and we were shocked to learn that was nine million acres of iowa that's one fourth of iowa and when we looked at the where those water courses are that's about all that's left in iowa is it, you know that isn't <laughs> deep into agriculture right. and so when we saw that boy there's the natural corridors is going right back to those water courses. And so that's what we've been focusing on is identifying those and trying to set up a vision to start with. And we should be starting here, which, you know, is the front line. If we don't solve it here, it doesn't matter anywhere else. And how do you get farmers on board with basically taking land out of production into, again, restoring them as natural areas? Uh, and, and I mean, they still own that land. How do you get them on board in such a way that, you know, they can still see some, you know, some benefit to them? Yeah, and that's really a good question because if we look back, we've tried this in the past with various different programs. So we had the last one most people might be aware of, that CRP, which is a short-term five-year trying to address soil loss. But we had a wetlands program that's like a permanent easement, and that farmer still owns and, and you know has rights to that land, but he can't change that wetland. And that was a big program. Everybody, if we'd have had more money in that program, it was so successful. It was shocking. Yeah. Because I think a lot of farmers would like to look at an alternative. They can economically do something with their land and have it heal. And they know more maybe than the rest of yeah. us what that means. Then, you know, they're caught in that economic bind that we're all maybe caught in, in a way. And, so, and wildness is a, it's not just a rural issue as well. It's an urban phenomenon, or it oh. should be. It should be something that urban people are thinking about in the context of their own communities and even their own yards. Yeah, good. And in 2007, we thought, okay, we need to address this. So that's about the time cougars started coming into downtown Des Moines. And we said, okay, why are they coming into Des Moines? Because they don't have any choice. They're following that Des Moines River. So we looked at a bypass around Des Moines, Chautauqua public areas and Neil Smith uh, uh, Wilderness area. And we looked at all that and we linked them up. And we brought everyone together, those agencies. We brought particular personal farmers together that were interested in making this corridor. And we were so cutting edge, I think everybody just couldn't believe it. But we're still trying to talk about, we're gonna have to do that sometime. We, we need to move in that direction. So yeah. you don't want to stop that flow of, you know, any kind of stuff moving along that river. Right. Well, and we're looking at building a water park and, you know, we're downtown and everything. And, you know, we, we sure need to be addressing the water quality and the, uh, the real biological corridor that that yeah. reason that river's there. And that's the, that's the, the, the big picture in terms of an urban community. What about the smaller picture? What, what can individuals well, do yeah, on their own they, to kind of uh, rewild their space? 
Well, and that's where I, you know, I try to mention uh, the rewilding, dewilding is where it starts. So you start looking at what are the alternatives. And so we've got people like yourselves at Urban Garden. So they're saying, okay, I don't have to have a monoculture. I don't have to spray all this poison to kill, you know, dandelions and get rid of the bees. There are choices. And so as you start making those choices, you start seeing that there's people that are now doing yards of nothing but prairie species. They don't have to mow. They don't have all that uh, weight of having to deal with all the problems of trying to maintain a monoculture, which is one of the hardest things you could ever do. <laughs> right, and right. so, you know, we're all looking for those things. And, and we're, we're looking at urban gardens where it's not even just your yard. It's a common space. And we're seeing that for schools going on. There's all kinds of programs going on of growing gardens to feed the children at the school so they understand that relationship of person to place. Yeah, that's really, I think it's really important because, you know, it's, you think about um, all the, I mean, the, the Iowa's population is increasingly urban. Uh, and so, yeah, what, I mean, the, the, the vast tracts of land are still with farmers and landowners in rural areas, but the, there's a huge you know, concentration of people in urban communities and, and not just the bigger cities, but the suburbs as well. And a lot of these, a lot of the smaller suburbs uh, don't allow bees, don't allow chickens, don't allow um, <laughs> urban garden. You, you, you're not allowed to have raised beds, for example, on your front lawn. Uh, yeah. You know, so I mean, there's a, it seems like there's a really huge educational possibility here for people to get beyond well, uh, the, the stereotype of a monoculture lawn as the preferred option. Well, you know, you stepped into a big one with food because, you know, we looked at what 86% of what we eat is imported from our average of 1,500 miles away. Now, what kind of security comes with that? And we're seeing all these breakdowns with the virus and stuff that, wait, these systems that we set up, all we want them to do is come right back because we can't imagine a different direction. But then you look at all the people out putting gardens in now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, there was talks of, well, how are we going to get vegetable seed? and selling uh, soil at the uh, garden centers like crazy because people understand how things work you know they, they, they you want to know about your food you want to know what's in it you know those yeah. kind of things well mark this is a really important conversation and i'm glad that your 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 effort brings urban and rural concerns into the same conversation because i think that's really really important and so um again we've been talking with mark edwards and if folks want to learn more about rewilding iowa you can go to the Facebook page. It's re-wilding Iowa and beyond. That's re-wilding Iowa and beyond. Or you can go to the uh, website, which is bewildrewild.org. Mark, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Good. I'm glad to explore this with you. Thanks. And hey, when we come back, folks, uh, stick around. We're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh about her trip to Cuba. And I'm going to share with you Simon Conway. Again, if you don't, for those who don't know, Simon Conway is one of the uh, two biggest uh, right-wing talk show hosts in Iowa. He took a shot at me for saying that, hey, maybe we should look at what Cuba has done on agriculture. Anyway, interesting feedback on that. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk with Maureen McHugh when we come back from a break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. 
Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Findlay, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host. Uh, later in the program, uh, Kim Jackson is going to join us. She's a candidate for the state senate in Georgia. We're going to talk about Georgia's crazy election problems. Uh, I want to take a, a quick second to thank a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is still doing takeout, and they've got a farmer's market presence every Saturday morning in downtown Des Moines. Thanks also to the Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Okay, again, later in the program, Kim Jackson joining us from Georgia about Georgia's crazy election fiasco. And then uh, Kathy Burns, from, uh, Kathy Burns rather, from Birds and Bees Urban Farm joining us uh, for the final segment of this week's conversation. But right now, I'd like to welcome to the program Dr. Maureen McHugh. She's a professor at the University of Iowa's Global Health Studies program and has traveled to Cuba. Maureen, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued about your visit to Cuba, your impressions of Cuban agriculture, because, uh, well, I think it's an important conversation because I think it's just a matter of time before we're going to have to start switching to a more sustainable system of agriculture in the U.S. And I think that actually that, that, that transition is already underway. But, um, you know, the, the, the conflict was kind of brought to my attention uh, when Simon Conway, uh, one of the big WHO radio uh, hosts, blasted me for a message I wrote about um, learning from Cuba. I wrote that when it was no longer possible to fuel a tractor or combine, Cuban farmers brought back oxen. And he just had all sorts of fun to make about that, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and, of course, bringing it back to the fact that I failed to mention the thousands of people executed because they disagreed with Castro. Um, there's literally nothing Cuba about Cuba that we should applaud. Well, Maureen, is there nothing about Cuba that we might learn from, that we might applaud? Well, having been there multiple times, uh, I've had plenty of opportunity to compare and contrast uh, issues in Cuba versus here in the U.S. And while no government can ever be considered to be 
perfectly perfect in any way, I would say there's a lot we could learn um, from Cuba. And um, one of the things would be their approach to agriculture since the special period. In case people don't realize, Cuba was long allied with the Soviet Union. Then the Soviet Union collapsed. Meanwhile, while they were allied, they primarily survived on sugar, and it was a major industrial approach to sugar. And even in that period, when we were boycotting Cuba, we were still eating their sugar because we just bought it from Canada. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't know and, that. And yeah, I know. A lot of people don't know right. that. No, I'm not surprised, but <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> the duplicity of uh, international relations it boggles the mind. Anyway, um, as I was saying, uh, during the special period, when there was suddenly no more trade with the Soviet Union, there was no more petroleum. And their entire agriculture system had been built on trade. And they got their food from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union got their sugar, and uh, uh, Cuba got its petroleum. And so that whole entire chain of relations was broken. And they suddenly found themselves unable to feed their people, yeah. facing a real famine. And, and, it and it took a little uh, while for that transition to, I mean, my understanding is people went hungry for a while. I mean, not starvation sure hungry, but, but yeah. loss of, loss of calories, loss of weight. Because one of the things the Cuban government did right away was put in rationing and, and made sure that uh, the most vulnerable people got enough to eat, as opposed to here, where it's kind of, you know, every every man and woman for him or herself. Um, and and they did have a very peculiar outbreak of a disease among the men that they thought was infectious at first, but it turned out that they were doing such a good job at making sure the women and the children were well nourished that the men themselves became uh, malnourished and suffered the effects of malnutrition, all of which was fairly rapidly addressed once huh. they figured out the source. Um, but interesting, with regard to agriculture in general, was that here's this beautiful island, you know, sunny, sunny, beautiful, uh, perfect for growing food, but they hadn't. They'd, they'd grown tobacco, they'd grown sugar, they grew a few uh fruits and vegetables my very first time there i was planting um grapefruits and lemons and that sounds a lot like iowa uh, maureen i mean here we have the yeah. one of the best climates <laughs> in the world for growing whatever you want to grow i mean not not tropical stuff but and here we are largely yeah. growing food for export either to yeah. feed yeah. hogs and cattle to feed people's cars to feed laboratories and to create high fructose corn syrup you know so yeah. uh, <laughs> but now, i yeah, want to you very know very similar very similar it was uh, you know the the, the communist versus capitalist approach of the same thing. So what do you um, what do you say to people? And, what do you say to people who say, well, again, Cuba? There's nothing good about Cuba. They they were a dictatorship. Uh, Castro killed thousands of people. I mean, I'm I'm not even going to argue that point myself. My perspective is okay. So he was a dictator. That doesn't mean we can't learn something from a struggle his country had to go through. That country had to go through. I mean, look at China. We we're always criticizing communist China. Yet how many people? including Simon Conway's co-worker, or, or colleague, I should say, Jan Michelson, go to China to learn about Chinese medicine. I mean, right, I mean, right, we, right, they're, they're, right. they're... And, and <clears throat> same could be said for Cuba. From 
very early on uh, after kind of a fiasco time in uh, South Africa during the time of apartheid, the Cuban government decided they their best export would be good doctors, good health care. Mm. And that was the second way I really got to learn about Cuba because they've been doing a lot of uh, cutting-edge research. And uh, you can't go anywhere in the world just about without running into Cuban physicians. And that is such an impressive program that they have in terms of uh, supporting third world countries health care and advancing health care public health in many of the poorest parts of the world and they've even offered to come here like after Katrina um, to help out and so there's a lot one could learn about um, their health care or their approach anyway to public health I guess the, you um, know I guess that, the bo- you know the, the bottom line is they were um, you know the, Cuba was forced quickly suddenly to shift from a very industrialized agriculture, and again, a very export-oriented agriculture, to sustainable production, organic production, feeding its own people. I don't know right. what the transition is going to look like here in the U.S. as the climate crisis proceeds, but do you have any perspective on what we're likely to see and whether we are any we have any capacity at all to make the transition when we need to? Well, I, one of the lessons um, that Cubans learned was that after so many uh, years of industrialized agriculture, they had very few people around who actually knew how to do agriculture and how to produce food. And that's where what, what, what was called the cute story about the bull, bullocks came in because it was the old farmers who could bring that in. So that would be um, one thing is to go back to some of our older farmers who were family farmers before uh, industrial agriculture had such a stronghold. And, and try as much as possible to learn from them. I think probably we have more in our old textbooks and old uh, agriculture courses that we might learn from some older family farmers, uh, but that would be one thing. The other would be in terms of what Cuba did was they turned every piece of lawn and, and open ground into food production. Um, and we're seeing some of that now with urban gardens and um, community gardens and school gardens and things like that, I think they in some ways are beginning to show the way forward um, because we can't keep destroying our land and waterways with the industrial agriculture that we currently follow. And to produce enough food, <clears throat> we're going to go have to go back to some of the solutions that, that Cuba had in terms of finding other smaller more localized ways to develop food. We have um, any number of small models, and I think we're going to have to just um, yeah. increase the, and, the prevalence. And, and yet, you know, if you look at the, uh, again, the current system of support for, for growing food, and I put food in quotes there, is, uh, is, yeah. is commodity-based uh, subsidies, uh, crop mm-hmm. insurance, um, you know, for corn, soybean, cotton, wheat, uh, other, again, commodity crops. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, when it comes with uh, when it comes to urban agriculture, there's so many impediments. Uh, Des Moines happens right. to be a lot more progressive than most other cities in Iowa that I'm aware of. But there are plenty of cities where you're not allowed to have chickens. You're not allowed to have bees. You can't have uh, you can't grow vegetables in the front of your house. You can't use the parking strip for production. And it seems like 
even though we're becoming more and more aware of the problems uh, associated with our, our dependence upon this global food system, there's still a lack of interest in changing on the, on the part of a lot of city officials and planners. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I just say the hopeful thing is that the models are being developed and that, that people are working on them and people are certainly aware of what are some of the disincentives to doing that and addressing them. And I think um, to some degree um, the next big noise that's going to be made by the population writ large is going to be uh, we need to uh, defund our agricultural system as it stands and use that funding uh, to, go, to move into a more localized, more community-based uh, system. The other thing that we need that nobody ever talks about that I think is really important is to consider how we, um, what we do with the food we produce. Uh, you know, not only do we not grow f food, you know, f for the most part, I do because I grow Jerusalem artichokes, <laughs> but most people don't grow food between October and m March. So we need to also talk about freezing, canning, uh, drying, pickling, and uh, producing foods in a way that they can be sustained over that uh, non-growing period to a much larger degree than we do now. I mean, I, I think we'll continue to get some foods from Florida and California, but nevertheless, I think we also need to talk about uh, food mm -hmm. storage and um, <clears throat> production of, of long, uh, long-term yeah. maintenance of, of our crops. So you know. one, one, um, last, one last general question for you, Maureen, just uh, about Cuba. <laughs> Is it, uh, we still don't have normal, fully normalized relationships with the country, relations with Cuba. Uh, no. Is it high time that that be accomplished? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when you talk about a country 90 miles away, that, that that is just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just the idea of tourism, but also the idea of intellectual exchanges, health exchanges, um, uh, science exchanges. Cubans are nothing if not well-educated. Um, they have a very uh, large, well-educated uh, scientific community um, doing real cutting-edge work, like I, I mentioned, particularly in the healthcare field. And it, it makes no sense whatsoever to not trade, to not uh, enjoy, you know, tourism, not enjoy the foods from a tropical country, and right. and, and back and forth. So yes, and of course, and of course those, uh, and of course those uh, Cuban cigars as well, right? Yeah, well, as a physician, I'm not going to push the Cuban cigars. <laughs> Even in Cuba, though, they really pushed back against tobacco use, oh, okay. which I found was another good. interesting thing. Good, good. Um, they are interested in the health of their population, and they've done some of the most interesting and innovative things early on in terms of AIDS, in terms of responding to the tobacco epidemic. Uh, many, many things we could talk about. Yeah. And obviously, you know, if you don't use tobacco, that meant more land for growing food. And similar here, if we didn't right. tear up our land, you know, producing petroleum and transporting it, that would be still more land yeah. that trees at least and brush and well, Maureen, uh, flowers. <laughs> I got to run, run to a break, but I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Dr. Maureen McHugh. She's a professor at the University of Iowa's Global Health Studies Program. 
And we've been talking about her visit to Cuba. One of many. One of many, right. Okay. Hey, thanks for joining us again, Maureen. Hey, folks, when we come back from a short break, Kim Jackson's going to join us. She's a candidate for the state Senate in Georgia. And we're going to talk about Georgia's election fiasco. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Uh, and again, thanks to the uh, stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can also hear the program as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website. And we do uh, air some of the program content on our Facebook page. That's the Fallon Forum Facebook page. All right, a quick shout out to a couple of our local Iowa-based uh, nonprofit partners. Thanks to Bold Iowa fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. That's boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Turn your yard into dinner. Check it out at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, uh, so, you know, in Iowa, we, we felt pretty bad after the Iowa caucuses because we messed it up so bad. And everybody here was very embarrassed. Uh, people around, this, around the entire country, around the entire world, were making fun of Iowa's election process. Well, we're a little bit relieved now that uh, Wisconsin screwed it up. And now, to take even further attention away from us, it looks like Georgia might have screwed it up as well. Um, anyway, from all we can tell from the outside, Georgia's primary was a election fiasco and coming under a lot of criticism, not just from Democratic sources, but from independent-minded sources as well. And joining me is one of the candidates uh, who ran in that election, uh, Kim Jackson. Hello, Kim, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Kim is an Episcopal, Episcopal priest and also with the LGBTQ community in Atlanta. Uh, Kim, delighted to have you join us. Yeah, thanks, I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, so um, what went wrong? <laughs> I mean, there was a new system I mean, the, the premise was, hey, this is new, it's better, it's going to work. What went wrong? Um, I think the better question may be what went right. Um, there were so many things that went wrong. So uh, I can say in my district, we had several precincts that were slated. Everything should have opened at 7 a.m. There were precincts that didn't open until 8 or 9 a.m., um, some as late as 10 a.m. because... Uh, for thing, basic things like machines for voting literally not being on site. 
So how, how do you how do you take? I mean, that's a Secretary of State problem, correct? That's right. That's and that's, a, a, that's a Secretary of State Raffensperger, I believe. That's right. Yeah. yeah and so a, how how did he explain? I mean, you have all this time. I mean, you have more time because the because COVID nineteen delayed the primary, and suddenly, you know, you don't even have the machines on site. How did he explain that? Right. So in Georgia, the Secretary of State um, has consistently placed blame on county officials. So each county has a county elections board and carries out their own elections. Um, but obviously, the machines. It all works into, you know, it all works together. And so, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, the leadership is at the top, and it was a failure of leadership um, from 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 the very very top. Um, but he publicly, you know, released a press release early on saying that he was not responsible. That this was county poor planning. Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, and uh, my other impression, one other impression I've had is that uh, some people waited in line for up to as, as many as four hours. It's up to six hours. Six hours. Yeah. Wow. And no protection from the elements, the sun, rain. That's right. Right. That's right. I mean, people actually waited in rainstorms. Uh, Georgia in the south um, during the summer, we often have kind of these evening rain showers or storms that come through. And so you had people who were sitting out in rain showers and hot, hot sun earlier in the day, um, just simply waiting to vote because you had machines that either weren't working or the scanner wasn't working. Um, the other thing to also recognize is that because of COVID-19, we had to really basically beg for volunteers to come and um, to manage the polling stations. So you had a bunch of people who had never, ever managed a polling station working there and trying to manage brand new machines as well. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. So I have a, a friend of mine who was working in Rome, Georgia, and he, he signed up to volunteer literally the Monday before the election on Tuesday. And he came in expecting that he would be directing traffic, but instead they handed him a manual and said, here, you need to set up these machines. <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a person who's inclined to conspiracy theories, but I think it's fair to say that there have been significant efforts across the country, primarily led by Republican officials, to suppress the vote. And uh, we've seen this in state after state. I wouldn't say it's exclusively a Republican problem. I know that there's been a lot of concerns about uh, sometimes in Democratic primaries where that happens. But, but this seems like another example of a Republican uh, state leadership um, possibly intentionally setting the setting the thing up to fail is I mean am I going overboard by suggesting that's a possibility? I don't think you're going overboard. Uh, I don't think we can ever know people's intentions truly, um, and so certainly uh, Secretary of State Raffensburg would would say that there was no intent, no mal intent uh, involved in here. I will say there was a perfect storm of events that all collapsed and coincided with one another. So uh, in the metro area, we had polling sites that pulled out literally days before the election. And so you had folks who were sent a letter to say, hey, by the way, you have to go to a new location to vote. But because the polling site pulled out so late, they didn't get the letter until the day after the election. Right. So we just had there's just this cascade of errors upon errors upon difficulties. I mean, nobody could predict a pandemic. 
Um, and also Georgia has relied for so long on having poll workers who are the average age of a poll worker in the metro area is 76 years old, wow. which I think is amazing on one hand. But when you have a pandemic that, uh, you know, impacts right. uh, people who are over 65, you know, we had poll workers who rightfully said, I can't I can't do that. Yeah, it's, it's not a chance you want to take. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, now in some sometimes you have situations where like I know this was the case in Arizona. Uh, I can't remember where else now, but where polling places are closed. I think it happened in Wisconsin as well. In fact, they they limit the number of polling places. And in the past, they've done this for different reasons. And more recently, it was done because of covid. But did that happen in, in Georgia as well, where they closed polling places and thus forced more people to go to, you know, a limited number of options? That's right. And um, Georgia has had a history of closing polling places in majority African-American communities since before this election. Um, and there are actually, in fact, lawsuits regarding that because they've targeted African-American locations. Um, but particularly specific to COVID-19, what we saw was not that the counties closed the polling locations on purpose. In Georgia, the vast majority of polling locations take place in churches. And so churches decided not to take on the risk that was involved in having to clean their space after, you know, having an election there. So you, you found a lot of churches that backed out um, as being precincts, which then left uh, the, the counties having to scramble and to consolidate polling locations in order to, to allow people an opportunity to vote. Hmm. Okay, well, that's... Uh... Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, do you think they'll, that, that some of these problems will be addressed and cleaned up in time for the general election, or is there, are they likely to persist? All eyes are on Georgia right now. We have to clean it up here. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I remain hopeful, but also I'm, cautious, you know, I'm cautious in my optimism. Um, while I will, I will not say what was intentional and what was not. Um, I don't think it was all coincidental. And so um, this is something for us to watch for. I will say that Democrats and, and people who really just believe in the value of democracy all across Georgia are, um, are outraged by how terribly this election went. Yeah. And so there will be a lot of pressure to make sure that November goes better. Yeah. In fact, there'll be a lot of pressure to make sure that the runoffs go better as right. well. So here's what I don't, I don't understand. I mean, you've got a Republican-controlled state. Um, the primary election is both Democrat and Republican, and they're separate. They're not, you know, candidates aren't running against each other. So why would, um, you know, I can see why a partisan uh, secretary of state or other political leadership might want to mess up a general election to favor the Republican Party in this case, but there'd be no comparable benefit to messing up a primary election. I mean, maybe maybe the cynical mind says this was a trial run. <laughs> See how bad they get screwed up now. <laughs> that's uh, that's where my cynical mind went. Um, but also, Georgia again has this long history of voter suppression. So the mechanisms for creating long lines. I mean, so before the primary, we know that African Americans across Georgia stand in line on average of two hours longer than those who live in white communities. Wow. That has been in effect long before COVID-19. Wow. Uh, and so this is just the continuation yeah. of a, an already broken system that only became even more, uh, you know, more complex and, mm. and more messed up because of COVID-19. Wow. So, uh, and James also. So, you know, again, you, uh, you won your primary election 
And if you uh, do win in the fall, you would be the first uh, LGBTQ state senator in the history of the state of Georgia. That's right, yes. I, I do want to say for the sake of our audience and for anybody with the FCC listening that uh, to keep uh, to keep this fair and balanced, I will be inviting uh, Kim's uh, Republican opponent to join this program at some point. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, what, what do you what do you hope to? Let's assume you win. Uh, how, what would you hope sure. to accomplish as a state senator? Sure. So I've run on a platform to help make Georgia a fairer and a safer, um, and quite frankly, a more democratic place. So, you know, I have a couple of things that we'll really be pushing, which one of those is voter protection and making sure that we protect the ballot box and um, and also to re-enfranchise people who have not been allowed to vote due to felony convictions. Um, right now, also eyes are on Georgia because we had an officer involved shooting in which an unarmed black man was murdered on right. Friday. Yeah. And so I am deeply invested and interested in us um, reviewing and changing our use of force laws for Georgia when it comes to police use of force, um, along with eliminating our stand your ground and uh, citizens arrest. Now, part of, your, part, of your, part of your challenge as a state senator, again, as a Democrat, is that you've got a, a House that's controlled 103 to 75 by Republicans and a Senate that's controlled 35 to 21 by Republicans. Right. Uh, how do you how do you swim in that in that uh, in that tro those troubled waters? <laughs> yeah, so we actually are very hopeful um, that we will be able to flip the house in November. Um, we have some really strong candidates out there. We feel very optimistic. The numbers, I think, are on our side. Stacey Abrams did an incredible job of helping us to see that there are lots of Democrats out there who we just have to get to the polls. And so we we anticipate being able to flip the house. Uh, and then as it relates to on the Senate side, sure, I'm, I'm going to be the only LGBTQ senator there. I'll be a Democrat and a mon minority. But I bring a large, long experience of working across the aisle. Um, as a pastor, that is actually one of the things that we have to do, right? We have to know how to minister and care for people who have all kinds of differing beliefs. And so um, I look forward to employing that skill and talent that I have in the Senate. Yeah. Great. Well, good luck with that. Hey, one, one last question for you. Stacey Abrams has certainly gotten a lot of attention since uh, the election last fall and is mentioned as a possible running mate for Joe Biden. What do you think? Is that going to happen? I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, selfishly, I want Stacey to be our governor, quite frankly. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's where I am. I, I do think that having someone like a Stacey Abrams as vice president um, would be really important for us to, in terms of encouraging people to come out to vote. Um, I think that we need someone exciting on the ballot, and I don't know that Joe is uh, quite that person. So if we have to give Stacey to the United States in order for us to, to win, I'm, I'm okay with that. But again, I, fundamentally, I would love to have Stacey Abrams be our, our governor in Georgia. Yeah. Well, I, she came pretty darn close last time, didn't she? That's right. Yeah. Early on, when I was looking at my own numbers, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have Stacey Abrams' numbers, 49%, like 49.1%. Um, so... Yeah, she came very, very close. And again, this is where voter suppression, um, you know, really came to fore for us as we saw African-Americans all throughout the state having to sit in line or stand in line for long, long hours, people being turned away or given provisional ballots that were not counted. Um, you know, a lot of those problems were made manifest during her race. Um, and we just saw those repeated again this time. Wow. Well, hey, um, good luck. I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to call and, and talk with us about the uh, 
election problems in Georgia last week. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Kim Jackson. She's an Episcopal priest and a very active member of the LGBTQ community in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, when we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farms about uh, white privilege and urban farming. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to the local businesses that helped make this program possible, including Gateway Market and Cafe. That's our grocery store, also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And even though the dining room is closed, you can still do takeout seven days a week. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe, uh, fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Again, the, the dining room is closed, but you can order takeout. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks for, um, thanks for tuning in to today's program. We've had quite a diversity of conversations here about rewilding Iowa, about, um, about Cuba and agriculture there, and about uh, an urban farmer who is also an Episcopal priest and a real active member of the LGBTQ community in Georgia about the Georgia ele election fiasco. And now we're turning our attention to urban farming, but a different angle than we normally cover, the white privilege perspective on urban farming. With me is Kathy Burns. Well, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we sometimes are harvesting our vegetables, harvesting our fruits, and we will use the phrase, for instance, if we're harvesting Juneberries, we are Juneberry rich today. Or if it's uh, lettuce, we are lettuce rich today. Um, frankly, Ed and I are not rich. We, I don't, I don't make an income. I don't have health insurance. <laughs> you don't have health insurance. I mean, it's we we've uh, we've given up some of the luxuries of life to advance the missions that we believe in. But we do recognize that although we're not rich, money-wise, we are privileged race-wise. And it, it occurred to me that when you do urban farming, um, when I decided to go into it at least, I had a, a backup in case the whole nonprofit collapsed and failed on me. I had the advantage of being able to just get into it and start to establish this as, as an endeavor. Um, and I know that not everybody has that advantage. So the fact is we're white and we have advantages of that. We're privileged. And I just thought it was a good time to talk about that and talk about what, what makes us privileged, mm -hmm. 
what we can do with that as urban farmers. Yeah, and I would say you know it's speaking for uh, speaking as an Irish American. I mean, it's been my family's been here for less than a hundred years, and uh, when they first came here in the nineteen twenties, uh, they were not very privileged. In fact, they were greeted with signs saying "If Irish need not apply," and that first generation lived in you know basically a ghetto in the South Bronx of New York. Um, the next generation went to college. Uh, it was it was a tough, uh, you know. I, I grew up in a very very small home, six people in a very very small home, you know. But uh, as the as a second generation Irish person, you know, you you suddenly uh, those advantages of being here for a while accrue to you, and then the advantage of skin color kicks in as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I the Irish were one of the uh, reject uh, reject peoples of Europe. <laughs> there were others as well, you know, the 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 Roma people, for example, but. Um, we have that one advantage of skin color that, you know, I, I know families, you know, black families, Latino families. I have a Latino friend who's, who's been here five generations. He still gets pushed back. He still gets told once in a while, go back to where you came from. I don't have that problem. And that's all a factor of skin color. Um, we've been, we've been uh, trying to make sure that because there's more awareness with, uh, with some of the recent happenings with the Black Lives Matter movement, we, we have more awareness now than ever of not just what it means for us as white people to be privileged, but for um, the importance of doing what we need to do to help the world be a better place with that privilege. You know, there's a responsibility in it. And um, we want to make sure that we're just focusing on um, making uh, making lives better for everybody and especially for the people who have not had the privilege that we have taken for granted sometimes, frankly. Yeah, there's been a couple big developments in the last uh, few months that have, uh, you know, given us a chance to really stand with our Latino brothers and sisters and our black brothers and sisters. The, uh, the whole movement to uh, stand up for the workers at uh, the meatpacking plants who Basically, we're given very little to no protection against the coronavirus. And uh, we've, we've joined with LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens, to help promote the um, boycott of meat processed mm -hmm. by Smithfield, uh, JBS, Tyson, plants that have not, you know, have not done right by their workers. And again, the workers aren't entirely Latino, but the workers are largely minority and communities that are very heavily impacted by the coronavirus. Uh, we've also personally attended, you know, the protests for Black Lives Matter uh, that we have been able to and participate a in a way that is as meaningful as possible and not try to talk over the voices. It's been really encouraging to see the young leaders getting uh, getting involved and, and moving that forward, and there have been a lot of advances. Something that's been frustrating for me, uh, you mentioned the the Tyson and Smithfield packing plants. I have uh, you know, Facebook friends, social media friends, acquaintances, old classmates. Uh, it's been a little frustrating sometimes to respond in a, in a significant way uh, to some of the posts that I see. And I've decided, you know, like, I need to respond more consistently than I think I have in the past and put my voice in there. I, I don't want to get into name calling. I don't want to get into arguing, but I want to add some light to some of the posts that I see. And some of them have been 
disturbing, if not scary. I see a lot of use of the words us and them. Mm. And us is white people, frankly. <laughs> them is everybody else. And everybody who's, in, in some of the people I know, in their view, trying to take something from them. And, and um, it's, it's important for us to speak out and to try to work through those things with people that we know. I know some of the people posting these things, they're good people, they have blind spots, they, they, they are probably not gonna be swayed by anything I'm saying, but I'm hoping that maybe somebody else who's on their, on their sites or on their posts can, can see a little bit of something that they hadn't thought of before. Yeah, yeah, there's, one one thing that I again in the context of urban farming, <clears throat> you know, again the vast majority of Iowa farmers, both um, rural and urban, tend to be white. Although we have uh, some really amazing, innovative uh, Latino and Black farmers here in Des Moines that are mm -hmm. doing great stuff. Um, Lissa Wade with uh, Veggie Thumper comes to mind. David Houston, who's doing a, a great job, and and you know and the. These folks, I mean, we all, we, all, we all run into obstacles with city bureaucracy, state government, uh, other people, uh, you know, who might not, might push back against what we want to do to increase uh, the productivity of our, of our soil, uh, to grow food. Um, but, you know, some of the stories I've heard from David and, and Lisa indicate, yeah, you, you've got, there's some, there's some race talk in here that, uh, that, that's, that's, that you're running up against that, you know, me or another you know, white farmer, white urban farmer might not have that same problem. So one thing I, I really think that we should do as we're moving forward to how to, uh, how to address uh, what, what policy changes to make to get greater equality. You know, let's find a way to provide more land opportunities and technical assistance to, you know, black farmers, Latinos, Native people, uh, Asian folks, folks who would love to farm the land but don't have any access points, don't have any entry points. I mean, again, we are lucky, even though we don't own a home, or in my case, even a car, and don't have health insurance, we still have, we have a connection to our community yeah. that has enabled us to do what we do here on a very small piece of land that we've made very productive. More people ought to have that opportunity, and we shouldn't assume that everybody has the same access points and, and, and availability you know, of, of, of networks that we do. I think that's something that, you know, as we talk about how to how to um, how to create again greater equality to to bring forward a society that is truly, you know, balanced and equal. Um, you know, getting more getting more minority, you know, farmers back on the land would be a great a great way to do it. Well, there's a reason that that mostly white people are the quote farmers, urban or otherwise, um, especially the the large industrial farmers, and that's because people were who traditionally were farming were more diverse and then uh, pushed off the land and may, it, the systems were in place to make it impossible for people to, to stay on that land and to farm it because you had to have the income up front to put into the big machines, the chemicals, the kind of farming that we don't do. But there are reasons that when people talk about a farmer, mm. they get in mind, and, and, and this needs to change, they get in mind, usually a white male, uh, wearing bib overalls on a great big <laughs> tract of land with a big old tractor and a, 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 an arsenal of chemicals to wipe out the weeds. So uh, we need to change that stereotype of mm -hmm. what it means to work the land, to be a farmer. 
uh, even even a gardener, let's say. So I got a friend who's a small-scale dairy farmer in, in Maine. He has uh, 20 to 25 Jersey cows, and he helped do us inadvertently do a small uh, make a small contribution to breaking the stereotype of farmers by. Uh, he had a kid show up at his farm once, and um, when the kid went to school the next day and was asked to draw a picture of a farmer, he drew a farmer wearing shorts and an untucked Hawaiian-style, you know, uh, button-down shirt. And the teacher said, no, that's not how farmers dress. Well, that's exactly how, oh, no. how my dairy farmer friend dresses when he's out in the barn with his 20-plus jerseys, his uh, shorts and, uh, <laughs> and a Hawaiian shirt. So, yeah, I mean, that, and that's, that, that's not a... That's not a race-based stereotype. That's a, an attire-based stereotype, but still... It means it's a stereotype. It's a stereotype still, and it needs to change. All, all these stereotypes need to change. But again, for them to change, there needs to be more opportunity. And I really commend Lisa and David for the incredible progress they've made at doing what they do without a lot of help. You know? I mean, they've, they've really worked hard. And oh, I know God. there are other... I, I, know, I know a couple of Asian farmers... Um, who well, have done incredibly hard work, mm-hmm. incredibly hard work without any assistance to get where they get where they're at. Yeah. And that, you know that when, when we've been to the farmers market and we're not ready to go yet with coronavirus out there, but when we've been to the farmers market a lot in the past, I you know it's it's important to remember to focus your efforts on some of the small local producers and people of color who are out there breaking those stereotypes and making a way for more people to get involved in a really gratifying way of life and a really important way of life. Localizing food sources is yet another way that we can start to balance out the, the uh, not the privilege, but balance out the, the resources available. Um, let's face it, there are not unlimited resources and they need to be more equitably available and distributed. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a conversation we need to continue to have. I, you know, and I, again, I, I I'm troubled by the like the folks you mentioned earlier who the us and them folks um who say well why you know why don't uh, why don't uh, you know slavery was a long time ago blacks need to get over that or yeah we treated the Indians pretty bad but they just need to get beyond uh, beyond our attempt at genocide. You know? Oh. I you know and I I think of my perspective as an Irish farmer years ago. Um, you know, the potato famine wasn't that long ago. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still affected by that. You know, so to, to brush off people's past experience is, is, is just, is just um, it's wrong. It's not accurate. And it's really, really insensitive. So, again, and I harmful. think... Uh, and, and harmful. harmful. We could talk a lot more about that. Uh, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Again, mm-hmm. uh, thanks for tuning into today's program, folks. Mm-hmm. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking our production team of Kathy and Sherry Herdina. And the local stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program every week. Again, we're the Fallon Forum, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa.